Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. Running a little bit late on the live stream today. The Mac decided it wanted to uh, reboot uh, and update and uh, take a while doing so. Uh, that's why I use Mac is because that sort of thing happens less often than it does on Windows. And uh, before you chime in, IT people, yes, I have automatic updates off, but uh, I, I think I may have clicked something by accident. I'm not sure, but it, it began updating and it, it would not uh, come back to life. Uh, so I had to just let that happen there. But we're here now, and uh, we've got some news to talk about today. Uh, slower news week than we have had of late, uh, and that's okay. We'll uh, not have such a long show today. That will be uh, helpful. But, uh, of course, the major news breaking now uh, in the last 24 hours is that Elon Musk is once again in the driver's seat when it comes to the Twitter deal. It does look as though uh, Elon Musk will, in fact, be able to take over uh, Twitter. Uh, that is uh, the latest now. They, they're going to go back to the original price point. Steve Bannon, uh, in an interview with someone, I don't know if it was his own network or someone else, but someone was interviewing Steve Bannon. And what Steve Bannon said is that Twitter said that they will knock uh, a few billion dollars off the price if he agrees that the old management can stay in place, and he agrees that the conservatives will remain banned on the site and that Elon Musk said no. That's what Steve Bannon has said today. He cites anonymous sources in saying that. I can't confirm whether that's true. Uh, the management part on the surface sounds true. I don't know about the other parts of that claim. It could very well be true. I, I don't know. Uh, but that is a real question. Will conservatives, like myself, be unbanned on Twitter. And we've seen this over the past, what is it, six years now, just about, beginning in around uh, 2016, 2017, the purge of conservatives from Twitter. And it just went one after another after another. And they made up various excuses. They said, oh, you violated these terms of service. Oh, you violated those terms of service. The reality is there's a whole bunch of reasons why they would ban you for being a conservative. But if you were a conservative, a Republican, a Trump supporter, and you were effective, then you were banned. And so if you see a conservative who remains on the Twitter platform today, there's a reason why they are still there. There are compromises that these people make in regards to putting out stories, in regards to uh, what kind of news they will report, etc. I think the best example was the Hunter Biden laptop. I remember when the laptop news started breaking, all of the instances of Hunter Biden's misconduct, his corruption, the involvement of his father. And it was breaking on, uh, I think it was, oh, I think it was a Sunday or a Saturday. I was coming back from Dallas. I attended a World Series game out there. It was a spooky experience. The stadium was pretty much empty. They had one in 10 seats or something filled up. A really bizarre experience. And I got back to D.C. I was landing. The internet had cut out for a while. And as I was landing, uh, I saw all this news coming out. And I got on the phone with Ali Alexander, who is a friend of mine, and, and many of you are familiar with him. And I said, Ali, why, why aren't these people tweeting about this? It's, it's come out. And I think he was already banned or he, they had banned one of his accounts. I'm not sure. And I said, you're tweeting about what, what, what's wrong with the, why aren't these other people tweeting it? And you know some of the names. I don't have to name these people. Some of them are my friends. 
Some of them are my acquaintances. Some of them are my associates. But he said, I talked to them. They're not tweeting it. In fact, they did just the opposite. They counter-signaled. You know, I, I can give you two examples. And uh, again, these are people I've been friendly with over the years, really friendly with. And 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 that is Mike Cernovich and Jack Posobiec, both of them still on Twitter, both of them uh, with more than a million followers. And they came out as the Hunter Biden laptop surfaced and they said things, this is right before the 2020 election, and they said things like, will not be talking, and I'm paraphrasing here, but will not be talking about the Hunter Biden laptop, it's revenge porn and it's disgusting. Basically sealing off the whole issue, saying they're not going to talk about it. And why weren't they going to talk about it? Well, look what happened to the New York Post. The New York Post, the oldest newspaper in the country, was frozen their account frozen on Twitter for putting out a story which lived up to their journalistic standards, a news story, for merely tweeting a link to a news story. And these people would not even be treated that well by Twitter. They would just be summarily banned for life. And their interpretation, their understanding of what Twitter was worth to them, emotionally, financially, etc., Rightly or wrongly, their calculation was that they were going to sit that issue out, tweet out casserole recipes and family photos and ask people whether they prefer jogging or cycling or talk about testosterone replacement therapy. But they were not going to be in the run-up to the 2020 election talking about and revealing to their nearly a million followers or over a million followers at the time in, in one or more cases they weren't going to be revealing the Hunter Biden laptop. They were not going to get into that issue. Now, a year later, two years later, we're sitting here. Biden's in office. It's been a total disaster. The New York Times has even basically admitted the laptop is now real and not Russian disinformation. Well, now they're willing to mention it, you know, because there's no cost in mentioning it now. There's just no cost to that. I mean, there's no cost in talking about the CIA's brothels in San Francisco and LSD experiments today. Everyone knows about it. There's Wikipedia pages about it. The cost would come if you were talking about them as they were happening. That might get you rousted from a newspaper. That might get the CIA to try to set you up. That might get you killed or thrown out a window or discredited in some way. Wrongly discredited, that is. So it isn't just talking about stories, it's when you talk about them. And so the question is now, what is going to happen with Twitter? Is it going to be restored to its former utility? I would say glory, but it was never quite glorious. But its former utility. Is Elon Musk going to do the right thing? Are people like me and Laura Loomer and Alex Jones going to be unbanned, restored to Twitter? I mean, one of the things I can tell you today about Twitter is that the volume is not even close to what it used to be. Just the overall volume on the site. Users have been banned in mass, but they've also left. They've also abandoned the website. I mean, I, I recall uh, at times, and this is not when Trump retweeted me as president. This is other times. I, I put out tweets and to under 200,000 followers, say 180,000 followers, I think I was banned, I had 188 or something like that, I would get hundreds and hundreds of 
thousands or sometimes millions of impressions. I would get tens of thousands of retweets, tens of thousands of likes, multiple thousands of comments. That doesn't exist anymore. Once in a blue moon, you'll see some viral tweet that has that kind of number. But it was regular. I remember James Woods, the actor, the, the genius actor, poker player, MIT graduate. He would tweet things out. And man, it would be like 30,000 retweets, 40, 50,000 retweets on a normal kind of punchy tweet. Doesn't happen anymore. On, the, on that small number of followers, I'd get two, three, and four, and 500 million impressions a month. Doesn't exist anymore. Nobody gets anywhere near that, even if they have a million followers, two million followers. The volume's just not on the site. It's in Twitter's interest to restore the volume. Whatever they say about their active user base, and, and maybe I'm missing it. Maybe they're all in the uh, uh, computer geek community on Twitter, or maybe they've had huge growth in the Twitter furry community, or the Twitter, uh, you know, uh, naturist community, or maybe in their multiple porn uh, sites, they've had huge growth. I don't know. But everywhere I look on Twitter, and I follow a lot of different things on Twitter from time to time, financial news, overseas news, etc. Everywhere I look, the volume's way down. And it's in their interest to get it back up. Now, the other part of this whole saga has been that there just has not been the uptake of these alternative platforms. And I want to be clear about this. It is not to say that the efforts are not valiant efforts. Andrew Torba in starting Gab has paid huge costs. I mean, whatever he's made in dollars and monetary sums from that site, and I don't know that he's made any net-net, but whatever he's made, and I hope, I hope it's a lot, he deserves it. I hope that Andrew Torba has made millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars with Gab. I don't know that he has. I, don't, I just don't know. I guess not. It seems like yeoman's work, frankly. These, but these are valiant efforts these people have put on, and I want to say that first of all. But, and this is the, this is the other side of it, there, there just hasn't been huge uptake of these platforms. These are pigeonholed websites that appeal to right-wing, uh, Trump-supporting, U.S. politically-oriented users. In the case of Gab, younger people. In the case of Truth Social, older people. And it's a big echo chamber of political blather uh, within that realm. That's what these sites have. Gab is a little bit more diverse. There's, there's, there's a little bit more commentary on other subjects there besides just right-wing political blather. Truth Social is basically uh, the equivalent of, you know, signing up to get Trump news email alerts or, or, or texting alerts. And you can follow me on these places. I, I'd encourage you to at Jacob A. Wool. But it, it's essentially Truth Social is the equivalent to signing up for a right-wing mailing list and getting hounded with, with you know, just messaging all day long. I was going to say propaganda, but I guess it's not technically propaganda. But just just getting hounded with political messaging all day long that are just, you know, rah, rah, let's go Trump ads, etc. There's nothing of, of any unique value there, typically. I mean, I post things of value there, and a couple other people do as well. But there's there's nothing there. I mean, if, if you, uh, if I were walking through Washington, D.C., let's say, and I heard a, 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 a big explosion. If I, if I heard what sounded like a big explosion, I could search on Truth Social, assuming their search feature is even working at the time, 
I'm not going to see anything. Nothing. I, I won't see any breaking news about what's going on. Will a local DC reporter have the story on Truth Social? No, not at all. Not a chance. I could look on Gab. It's going to be the same thing. I'm not going to find anything of value. Now, if there was an explosion in Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe, I could find news on that on Telegram. And in fact, I could find it on Telegram probably much more quickly than I find it on Twitter because Telegram has had huge uptake in those parts of the world. No, but where, where I would, of course, go to see what the, what the hell's going on, if I heard an explosion in D.C., I would go to Twitter. Because in the United States, when it comes to news, when it comes to breaking news and commentary on that news, you find it on Twitter. That is where it exists. I wish that it existed on these other places, but there just has not been the uptake. If I see that there's some calamity in the financial markets, look on Truth Social, I'm not going to see anything about it. Nothing. Disclose.tv, a, a news aggregator, they might have something posted, just you know, one thing that links to something else, but I'm going to look on Twitter. I'll see 15 hedge fund managers commenting on it on Twitter. I wish it weren't this way. And again, the, the efforts of these alternative platforms are laudable efforts. And these people and their platforms ought to be supported. But the frank reality of it is that there has not been the uptake. They don't have the content of value. I simulpost on these sites and I seldom, seldom consume any content from them. Because I just don't see anything. If I scroll through the timeline, it's just useless blather. That's all I see especially Truth Social. And man, maybe I just haven't found out the accounts to follow. Maybe I'm using the sites wrong. But that's what I see, and that's what other people that I know see on these sites. So let's hope that Twitter, the place that actually has the people and the resources and the reliable technology, although Truth Social has been pretty good as of late, let's hope that they get back to functioning properly, folks, because... Uh, that would be just a, just a win for everyone. It would be a win for everyone. And it's not to say that Twitter is all good either. I mean, even when Twitter was functioning at its best, you still wouldn't get accurate reflections of sentiment from Twitter. That, that's one thing to not take away from any social media platform. If you want to get an idea of, of public sentiment, Facebook, Twitter, all these sites, these are not the places to get it. You get a very different reflection of public sentiment, you get a very different reflection of reality than what actually exists. Go on Instagram and just follow 10 accounts and let them serve you up things. What you will scroll through and you will see on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Twitter is nothing like what you will then go walk outside your door wherever you live around the world, go walk outside, go for a walk, go to any city, go for a walk. And what you saw being fed to you on these social media platforms will be nothing like what you see when you go outside for a walk. I mean, Instagram will serve you up. Um, I mean, just some of the most beautiful women you've ever seen. I mean, it's just, they're not even, I wouldn't even say the most beautiful women, these beautiful um, heuristics of women, almost. It's its like, 
what you may be seeing may or may not be a real woman, may or may not be her real name, her real profession, her real claim. The photos could be photoshopped beyond recognition. It may be an AI creation of a woman there to fool you. It could be any number of things. But the point is, whatever the hell that is, it's not what you see when you go walk outside. The, the version of the world that is fed to you through these apps is not what actually exists in reality. And that's on purpose. But I want to go here to this story about uh, Ukraine. I want to show you here. Uh, this is just absolutely crazy. This is how crazy some of the thinking is within the Western foreign policy establishment. And, and if you if you see this, it is just unbelievable how insane some of the people are that are the most influential uh, people within uh, our government within the, like I said, Western foreign policy establishment at places like the Atlantic Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, the people that really drive foreign policy. It's unbelievable. These these people are um, psychotic in some cases. We read through this story here. Uh, the report here is from the Daily Mail. And the, the headline says, Putin deposed Russia broken up and NATO in a face-off with China. As Ukraine sees a path forward and a desperate Vladimir Putin hits the panic button, experts argue this is how the war could end. So experts are arguing that you could see Putin deposed, removed from power, presumably killed. That's usually what they mean. That's what happened to Gaddafi. That's what happened to Saddam. That's what's happened to uh, countless foreign leaders that have been deposed. I mean, Deposed is a word which can be used in the fashion to mean the removal of a dictator. Deposed can also mean that you were deposed in a deposition. They sat you down and they deposed you. It was a deposition. They asked you questions. Deposed is an interesting euphemism in this case. Again, it's not totally incorrect, but when they mean deposed, often what they mean is assassinated. That's what it actually means. So let's call this what it is. They're saying assassinate Putin. Uh, they are saying, break up Russia into pieces. Uh, that is not something that generally happens. And and only a nutcase would look at Russia and think, you know what we need to do here is break up Russia. Now, th of course, there are these republics in Russia. I mean, you, you've heard of Chechnya, but there are republics within Russia, rural areas that you've never heard of. There, there are areas of Russia where they speak German. Bet you didn't know that. If you ever want to see some of this stuff, there's only a few people that you can see it from. The, literally, there are some places in Russia so remote. And I've actually, uh, the thing that's shown me around Russia is that I have uh, used HF radio, HF amateur radio. And you get on the HF radio and I can just right here on my desk with 100 watts of power, talk to somebody on the other side of the world, talk to somebody in Russia. And I have talked to people in some of these very remote parts of Russia when the propagation conditions are good. I can get on my radio without the use of satellites, without the use of repeaters, just point to point, bouncing waves off the ionosphere. I can talk to somebody in Russia, both over the voice and, and over digital modes. Basically, think of it as texting. And sometimes I've, I've talked to people in these remote parts of, the, of Russia, and then I look them up, and there literally are four pictures on Google Images. That's how rural uh, much of uh, Russia is. So it, it, it's quite 
unbelievable when you really figure that out. But they want to break up Russia. They want to break up these republics. And uh, then they want to move to facing off with China. And they say NATO in a face-off with China. I mean, I see how the United States is in a face-off with China. I don't even see at this point how you can make the argument that Europe is in any way at this point engaged in anything resembling a face-off with China. Europe embraces China. China embraces Europe. China is building the Belt and Road Initiative through Europe. They are uh, uptaking, uh, Europe is, Chinese Huawei cell towers, all of that. I mean, Europe uses China to the extent necessary. China uses Europe to the extent necessary. And they are not in a face-off with, with, you know, with China. Australia, I guess, to a small degree, I mean, you could say they're kind of in a geopolitical face-off there because they're closer by. I don't know what that has to do with then Russia, though. So it's just very, it's a, it's a whole bizarre thing. But let's get into this report here, again from the Daily Mail. The report says, land grabs, hundreds of thousands of conscripts thrown onto the front lines, and a nuke for anyone who dares stand in his way. Vladimir Putin has spent the past week doubling down on his war in Ukraine. But his bluster belies a simple fact. Russia is losing the war, and he knows it. The despot is desperate. His army is in tatters. His battle plans shot. He's burning through his cash reserves at an unsustainable rate. And winter is looming. Meanwhile, Ukraine's army continues to advance across the country, giving Kiev a viable path to victory, which begs the question, what happens if Russia is beaten? Well, that's quite an interesting way of describing Russia's position. I don't know what they mean by Putin's cash reserves are, are running out. They're, they're, they're running out. It doesn't make any sense. Russia is selling oil today for a higher price than when they invaded Ukraine. Now, oil's come down a little bit, but they're selling oil. Now you say, well, what about the sanctions? Okay, there are some sanctions. Those aren't fun. But in some cases, uh, what Russia is doing is they're undercutting the market price of oil. They're selling it to India for a little bit cheaper. They're selling more of it. So this idea that it's all bad for Russia, like economically, for instance, is, is a tough thing. And they say in winter is looming. Well, how does that put Russia in a worse position? Traditionally, what has happened is people that try to face off with Russia, they begin losing in the winter. Whether you talk about Napoleon or you, you, you talk about Hitler uh, trying to invade the Soviet Union, winter is what repels Russia's enemies. The Russians are used to the idea of winter. Now, so are the Ukrainians, mostly. You get into southern Ukraine, the winters are quite a lot more mild than they are in a lot of parts of Russia, generally, uh, especially you know Siberia and the like. But the real concern when it happens, when it comes to winter, is, is for Europe, because they are the ones who chase this green dream, who look to a 15-year-old autistic teenage girl, a 15-year-old autistic girl, uh, to be their leader on energy. And it has led them down a path in which they have all these solar panels and windmills that don't work, and they are dependent on Russian fossil fuels. So... I don't understand how winter could be a looming dark cloud for Russia. It seems to be a dark cloud for their enemies. It says here, according to Alp Semovolsoy, I'm going to just call him Alp here. 
Millennium Fellow at the think tank, the Atlantic Council, who spoke to Mail Online, that would mean Putin being deposed, Russia itself breaking apart, and NATO in a face-off with China over the spoils. Over the spoils? I mean, what do these people exactly think they're going to do? What do these lunatics want? They want to go in and, and, and assassinate Vladimir Putin and then face off in a war with China, within Russia, within Eurasia, over the spoils? These people are crazy. These people are absolutely nuts. They are off their rockers. I mean, this is like Dr. Strangelove, uh, the Stanley Kubrick film, if you've never seen it. But but it's just not even funny. At least uh, Dr. Strangelove, there's a, there's a certain absurdity to it. It's theater of the absurd. You know, they, they're playing up the strange voices and the guy rolling around and the gimpy guy in the, in the, rolling around in the chair. And it, it almost becomes Austin Powers-like, but it just, it's just real enough to where it's, it's kind of frightening. And you can read through that into real life. Now, you look at this and it's not that at all. This is a real person, App. Sam Milovosoy, uh, I guess I'll call him Alp here, from the Atlantic Council. He's a serious person in D.C. He's probably got a couple of PhDs. He, he is somebody that global leaders turn to for advice and guidance, and congressmen turn to for advice and guidance on foreign policy. And what he is proposing is assassinating Vladimir Putin, the longest-serving head of state in the world right now, overwhelmingly supported by the people of Russia, assassinating him, and then going to war with China over the spoils. What spoils exactly? The, the, the natural gas fields? The lumber? I mean, that was always the, the, the crazy part about the Napoleons of the world and, and all of that. It is like, what exactly did you want to preside over? What was all this really about? I mean, in Hitler's case, it made more sense because Hitler's thinking was that he couldn't support the war in the Western Front without the oil coming out of uh, basically the Caucasus mountain region of the Soviet Union, of Russia today, the Caucasus. And so what he was going to do is fight up over the mountains and take the oil to, to basically support the war. And you can make a certain argument that, that Hitler didn't have a choice but to do that. And you can make the argument that Stalin would have double-crossed him at some point too and taken all, anything and everything that he had. So within their frame of mind, it, it kind of made sense. Now, the train tracks weren't the same size, logistical issues, fighting in the mountains, the cold. Uh, you know, the, the, the old saying about the Germans in World War II is that uh, they had manufactured plenty of uh, winter clothing, winter boots, winter equipment, all of that. Problem is, they just didn't get them to the front lines. The logistics were the issue. So you, you go into this report here, it's just out of control, uh, you know, it talks here, it says the West must begin preparing for what eventually now, he adds, otherwise it will happen, uh, it will open the door to Beijing to muscle into regions such as Siberia, Central Asia, Africa, South America, uh, where it already has toeholds, but we'll see opportunities as Russian power fades. We have to move into vacuums, seek to exert influence, and then we have to face up to the People's Republic of China. China, a globally connected superpower, and we have to combat them effectively, he said. 
Now, most of these people have never uh, seen combat. Most of the people that talk like this have never served in war. Um, they don't know anybody who's ever served in war, generally speaking. Uh, in some cases, they've never even met anyone who's ever served in war. But they're saying, yeah, let's just go have a world war with China after we assassinate Putin. This is a, a real person from the Atlantic Council saying this. It's unreal. He says, we should be very clear. There is a contingent. Uh, he says, um, he's just talking here about moving into vacuums, going to world war. Uh, I mean, it's just one thing after another. And, and in all of this, you might be thinking, well, you know, there is this issue of of Putin and, and why did Putin go into Ukraine in the first place? And it, you, a lot of people can lose the forest through the trees here. You, you can. And so we should remember what this is really about. There is a contingent of uh, Ukrainian Nazis. They date back to World War II. The most uh, brutal slaughters of World War II, of Jews, of other people, were committed by Ukrainian units of the SS, Ukrainians serving Adolf Hitler. You can look into this, look up Ukrainian SS units in World War II, the slaughters they committed, the shooting pits. They were some of the most brutal of the entire war. They were not, I mean, th these people were so eager to take up the cause of Hitler and be murdering psychopaths uh, as soon as they got the opportunity. And they, the modern Ukrainian Nazis descend from these people, in some cases in blood form, literally descend from them. And these people, uh, they th these Ukrainian Nazis that exist, it's not all of the Ukrainian people, it's not, not even close to that, but th these Ukrainian Nazis, they are uh, Ukrainian nationalists. They see themselves as distinct from Russians, even though you can't really find any genetic difference or anything like that. doesn't matter. Just like North Koreans and South Koreans, things like this. Or, or people from Dalian and North Koreans, or you name it. And so, you know, the Burmese, all of that stuff. It, it, you don't have to have distinct... Uh, genetic, physical differences to, to have these kind of feuds. It helps, but you don't have to have it. So you have these Ukrainian Nazis, and they hate the ethnic Russians, especially the ones who basically declare themselves ethnic Russians in the east of Ukraine. They really hate them. They, they hold them in total contempt. It, it, we're talking about genocidal le levels of, of animus that they have. Genocidal levels of animus. And importantly, you figure, well, you know, you have nutcases here in the U.S. too. You have, you know, the Aryan Brotherhood or something. Well, here's the, here's the important part. It's not merely that these people exist. It's that they have been backed by the Ukrainian government. And by extension, they've been backed by the United States. Why? Well, they hate Russians. And within the United States, there is this anti-Russian animus, dates back to the Cold War. And if somebody's willing to be the enemy of Russia or the Soviet Union, then the United States historically has been willing to support them, whether they're the Mujahideen and Osama bin Laden or anyone else, Chechen terrorists, you name it, even ISIS in some cases. And that won't be declassified for another 50 years probably or more. So that's been what the U.S. does. And in this case, they support these Ukrainian Nazis. They supported them uh, with uh, money, lots of cash. 
And importantly, in 2014, we overthrew the pro-Russian regime in Kiev and replaced it with Poroshenko. Petro Poroshenko, a very corrupt leader. You all remember the calls. It was a puppet of the United States. And he was essentially a, an acolyte of these Ukrainian Nazis. There's a clip of him uh, here that I want to play for you. This is Petro Poroshenko. And I'm going to translate this for you faithfully for those of you listening. There's subtitles if you're just watching. I'm going to translate it. I'm going to talk about Petro Poroshenko here. And, and you listen to what Petro Poroshenko says about these people in the Donbass. That's what he's talking about. So I'm going to play this here for you. One, one moment here. He says, because we will have jobs. They will not. Talking about the people in eastern Ukraine. We will have pensions. They will not. He says, we will have care for our children. And they will not. Our children will go to schools and kindergartens. Their kids will sit in They don't know how to do anything. This is how we will win the war. So this is Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, and he hates these people in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so much that he is talking about bombing their children, and he's he's roiling in the idea of bombing their children, of of forcing their their kindergartners in eastern Ukraine into bomb shelters, of starving their seniors and taking away their pensions. He's roiling in this. He's declaring it publicly and proudly. This isn't a leak take. This is this is a public declaration in a speech by Poroshenko. This is the guy that. The United States installed. A top advisor to Zelensky, the current president who came into power following Poroshenko in 2019. I was in Ukraine at that time, much of that year in 2019. Personally, I saw this uh, take place. Well, top advisor to Zelensky, a uh, man named Ostavich, uh, said in 2019 that their plan to join NATO will prompt Russia to invade Ukraine. He said, quote, they must do this before we join NATO. Our price for joining NATO is a big war with Russia. So this is a, a top advisor to the current president back in 2019 when they're first coming to power. And he's saying, we have to join NATO. And the price to do that must be that we need to goad Russia into invading us. We need to force Russia to invade us. And when that happens, we'll fight a brutal, long war with Russia. And then we'll become part of NATO. That is a top advisor to Zelensky again not in a hidden thing, not third-hand, in a public declaration, this top advisor to Zelensky said. So this was the plan of these people. And you figure, well, why do they want to join NATO so badly? Well, look at all the money that's going over there. I mean, you saw what's happened. When you just indiscriminately send out cash, look at what happened with the Paycheck Protection Program. We all saw the fraud taking place everywhere. People weren't doing it to support employees. They fired the employees. They stole the money. That's what happened all over the country because when you create a program where the incentives are corruptly structured and there's no oversight, that's what happens. It's just guaranteed. It's like if you had um, casinos and they set up slot machines and they said, just tell us what your slot machine said. We're going to use the honor system. Every fraudster from here to Timbuktu would show up at those slot machines and dishonor that honor system to get free money. Of course, 
So you can't do that sort of thing. And, and then it went from 25% fraud with the Paycheck Protection Program to 50%. Then they told us it was 80%. I mean, the, the numbers keep going up. And it's the same sort of thing with Ukraine. You see those billions of dollars being sent over there? Weapons, cash, all of it. What percentage of that do you think is being used for the ostensible purpose that it was designed to be used for? 10%, I would guess, probably 10%. The guns are being sold into Africa, into the Middle East. They're being sold to crime syndicates in Asia. They're being sold all over the world. Uh, port of Odessa, basically now, and, and this, this smaller hidden secret port that doesn't even technically exist, but has been sending T-72 tanks out into Africa for years, including when I was there, saw it with my own eyes. Probably shouldn't have been there seeing it with my own eyes. They're shipping out guns, ammo, rockets like there's no tomorrow. I mean, to Iran, to everyone you can name, any, any lunatic who wants to buy them or buy now or, or get the buy now, pay later. Even they have that program going on, too, where if you're a, a, basically a, a criminal syndicate in Libya or something, they'll give you the guns. Now you go out, you rob people, you do whatever you need to do and you pay them later. It's a, it's a tremendous program. And of course, they're enriching themselves. So that's happening there. Constantly. So that's why they want to join NATO, so that this gravy train that's making these uh, billionaires uh, take over can uh, can continue, and these people will go from being worth uh, a few million dollars to tens of millions and hundreds of millions and billions and tens of billions of dollars. There will be new multi-billionaires minted in Ukraine. It's happening as we speak. Ten years from now, you're going to look up. You just Google five years from now, even uh, biggest yachts in the world, and you're going to see all these Ukrainian names owning these mega yachts, because that's how you ultimately prove you're rich at the highest echelons, is you have to have the biggest yacht. Whether you use the damn thing or not, whether it makes you seasick and it's miserable or not, you have to have the yacht. And you will see that it will be a, a dozen Ukrainian names that you've never heard of today and probably won't even have heard of then, people that uh, took advantage of, of, of the aid and, and, and misappropriated it. So all this talk of nuclear weapons taking place out of Ukraine. And I think a lot of it's overblown. But there's a report out of the Financial Times that gets into it a little bit uh, here. It says, uh, which nuclear weapons could Putin use against Ukraine? Russia has a stockpile of so-called tactical nuclear arms intended for battlefield use. And they talk about how when people picture nukes, they, they picture these huge devices, uh, megaton, 10 megaton, 50 megaton, czar bomb. But they, that's what people... Uh, Picture, the, the so-called strategic weapons meant to end a city, end a, a country. But there are these tactical nukes that are much smaller. Basically tantamount to the USB-61. It can be tuned all the way down to 0.15 kilotons, I think, which is still huge, by the way. And it's about, you know, yay big. It fit, I mean, it's a, it's a hundred pound, it looks like a hundred pound uh, little bomb. They have suitcase nukes. They have briefcase nukes. I have been told by some people who work in the government that they even have now a nuke that looks like a laptop computer. And um, it's a little bit heavier than a laptop because it has some fissile material in it, of course, and that stuff is kind of heavy, but not much heavier. Um, and uh, and it won't set off a, a an airport 
uh, x-ray machine because it doesn't have any traditional explosives in it that uh, you would associate with setting something like that off. Has a very small amount of, of 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 classified solid explosive on the outside to initiate the. Uh, I probably shouldn't even talk about this stuff, but to initiate the the action, and it's it's a laptop. Okay, so these things can be very small. They can be dialed down to very low yield. Nuclear weapons, that is. So all this talk about what what kind of nuclear weapons will be used. Most of the talk is not from Russia itself, and and Putin pointed out the. Only people who have used nuclear weapons in war are the United States. Now, some of these things are equivalent to 50 kilotons of dynamite, so 50,000 tons of dynamite. But again, they can go much lower. They can be up, up into the fractions of a kiloton. So if you talk about 150.15 kilotons, of, of that's like what? Uh, uh, that would be 150 tons. I mean, that's still a lot of explode. That's like, what would that be equivalent to? I guess you could say like two really large big rigs full of dynamite. I mean, that's, that's no joke. Uh, the United States reportedly ordering a bunch of uh, iodine tablets, I guess, a couple hundred million dollars worth uh, recently. I don't know what that's really actually about. Um, nuclear fallout's not as much of an issue as people pretend it is. It, it really isn't. It's not something we need to fear here that if Putin sets off a, a nuke, you know, we're all going to be radiated and we're going to have children with three eyes. There's other things. <laughs> there are other things going around that are going to cause you many more uh, health issues right now, birth defects, pregnancy issues uh, than Putin setting off a nuke. And I, I think we all know what I'm talking about. And, and it's not... Um, talked about by the media, but they talk about these tactical nuclear, nuclear warheads. Russia allegedly has 2,000 of them. Uh, the real question, though, I think is, is why hasn't Putin really ever exerted any strategic military force in all of this? I mean, they haven't hit Kiev with dozens of cruise missiles. They have not really bombed indiscriminately. Uh, Odessa is, is essentially untouched. There's one building that blew up in the outskirts of town. It, honestly, the building to me looked like it might have been blown up with a truck bomb by the looks of it. He, Putin has not just indiscriminately bombed the Ukrainian public, not even close. I mean, what Putin has done in, in bombing Ukraine has been much, much, much more precise and avoidant of civilians than what the United States did to Baghdad in 2003. By far, it's not even close, not even close. So they're basically guessing how this might happen. Uh, it says here, experts see three ways in which Russia might use a tactical nuclear weapon. The first is demonstrative, a nuclear ground shot that does not kill anyone. It could be detonated underground, uh, over the Black Sea, perhaps somewhere high in the skies above Ukraine or on an uninhabited site such as Snake Island. Snake Island? Really? What in the hell is this Snake Island thing? I don't even know that Snake Island even exists. I mean, it's like, remember the, the, the brave soldiers of Snake Island? They said, F you to the Russians, and they all died. Then that turned out not to be true. They surrendered. They didn't say F you at all. It was just a hoax. And then they retook Snake Island. That was the last one I heard. I, it's just this stuff, man. We're, we are being propagandized by these people. 
at levels that is just hard to comprehend. Snake Island. It says uh, another option. So that would be demonstrative. And by the way, the, the, the consequences of demonstrative are very, very low. I mean, Kim Jong-un conducted one of these demonstrative tests of a hydrogen bomb. Um, I think it was seven megatons. It set off a six, uh, a six point five earthquake in the area, and he set off an H bomb, and that was kind of that. Nothing happened. He's, by the way, launching rockets over Japan and South Korea left and right right now. Uh, but he did that, and we didn't do anything about it, and nothing really happened. So, uh, despite the nuclear test ban treaty, um, people test nukes. Okay, so it says there's another option here where it says the blast electromagnetic pulse would fry unprotected electronic equipment and the radioactive fallout, while large initially, would fall to about 1% of the initial radioactive blast in 48 hours. Yeah, uh, if they did an atmospheric test, uh, they claim it would fry all. It really, you know, it could. It depends where in the atmosphere it was set off. Um, actually, as I, as I understand it and as I remember, uh, the U.S.'s uh, atmospheric nuclear tests are what led us to discover the nature of the Earth's electromagnetic field of the Van Allen belts, for example, because we got to kind of map how that radiation moved across and everything like that. So I wouldn't worry about mass EMPs even in that part of the world from this. Of course, most military equipment is protected against EMP, and you would actually be surprised how much your, your civilian equipment is too. I mean, if you've got a computer that, or, or a phone that's made of metal, um, you'd be really surprised how well it does against something like a, you know, small hydronuclear uh, or hydrogen bomb, uh, a thermonuclear device set off way higher in the atmosphere. You, you'd be surprised. I, I think, you know, some power lines would have some issues. Some transformers would blow in that area. I don't think we'd have to worry about huge problems from, from this. Uh, at the time that those tests were done in the 60s and the 50s, um, remember, we're not talking about digital at the time. We're talking about analog tubes everywhere, tubes in just about anything. And, and so it, it's not exactly comparable to today. Now, of course, there would be some damage. Not something to worry about in a huge degree. Now, it says most of the radioactive dust uh, sucked into a rising cloud by the explosion would settle back on Earth nearby within 24 hours of the strike and would be an extreme biological hazard. Well, I... Hazard to biology, I guess. I mean, not a biological hazard, but anyway. Other particles uh, may be also dispersed by prevailing winds and settle in much lower concentrations over large parts of the globe. No, I don't think so. I mean, if you watch that special uh, Chernobyl on HBO, it's, it's wonderful. It's a good watch. But uh, that was about as bad as it gets as, a, as, as, as radiation threats go. And... Um, it was fine. I mean, people in Sweden that got the prevailing winds, they didn't get nuked. They're okay. The, the, the scaremongering of nuclear weapons, I mean, you understand it because it is this like invisible force that tears you apart and there's something really spooky about it. But I don't think it's something for us to, to lose sleep over. I really don't. It would start the escalation ladder and rise the prospect of a Russian attack on a big city. It would probably spark a global backlash for no military gain, making Russians more of a pariah in the world than they have ever been, as U.S. President Joe Biden said on in a September 16 interview. Uh, quote, opens a new window. 
So that is true. I mean, by all accounts, Russia is on the retreat, according to their own accounts. It looks like this could be maneuver warfare, that it could lead to their next offensive. Um, their conscription is not working real well. I think it's fair to say that. Uh, the Biden administration this week announced $625 million in new security assistance to Ukraine and includes four additional high-mobility artillery rocket systems, HIMARS. Those are pretty neat systems. But I think one of the things here about the Russian military, I mean, is, is yes, they have been proven to be really a, a paper tiger, uh, more than I think most of us figured they were. I mean, really, there's, there's videos of, of Russian soldiers taking apart their helmets, and it's like styrofoam and like thin pot metal. Um, if you ever test Russian body armor, you know, test it, it doesn't work. It, it's more of a, of, a, of a psychological cudgel for the soldiers to make them feel protected so that they soldier well, is, is the concept at least. Doesn't seem to really work in practice. I mean, you look at like an average Marine these days, I mean, our military has just gone, I mean, they've just, uh, obviously there's been the issues of, of the will to fight issues and, and the leadership issues and the transsexuals and all of that. First tranny uh, officer recently busted selling secrets to the Russians that report out last week in between shows, her wife as well, or his wife. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what you call this. So it's a, it's a man who's kind of pretending to be a woman, but, but not really. I mean, just kind of a man with lipstick and a dress, cross-dresser, transvestites, which you used to call it, with a wife. Do you call that wife a lesbian when she's married to a man wearing lipstick? I don't know. I just don't know. Does she call herself a lesbian? Well, in any event, both of them were spies. They were spies for the Russians. Another one busted this week uh, in an FBI sting operation out of Colorado. How he got a security clearance, I don't know. He had $300,000 in debt, bankruptcy, you name it. And within 25 days was busted. Of getting into the NSA was busted. Lied on his resume. It's just unbelievable. The contractors who do the vetting for the security clearances just do a really poor job a lot of the times. But anyway, you look at like a U.S. Marine, for those of you watching on video, and you look at a U.S. Marine today. This is a Marine infantryman, an 0311. And the way that they are outfitted, I mean, it's so much better than than they were in the early days of the war on terror. I mean, the Marines were famous in the early days of Iraq, for example, of wearing this enormously bulky body armor that almost looked like when you see those guys on the bomb squad that have to go defuse the bomb, the EOD guys. It was like so bulky that they couldn't even move. But you look today and it's, um, for those of you who aren't watching, I'm going to describe it as best I can if you're just listening. I mean, you see, I mean, from the head down, it's got a mount here. This night vision's not on it right now, but they have dual tube night vision, PVS 15s, uh, Gen 3, white phosphorus uh, night vision works really well, and they train with it. You have to train with it because night vision has to be manually focused. So if you have it kind of focused at your fighting distance so that you can see the enemy and use your firearm, well, um, the issue then is when you look down to reload, you have to be able to reload without looking sort of because, or at least without looking too much, you have to look kind of under the night vision, if at all, because uh, it's not going to be focused if you look down through the tubes. But our soldiers have Gen 3 night vision, dual tube night vision, and they train with it today, our Marines and soldiers. We're looking at a Marine infantryman here. And you look at the rifle he has. This is the new uh, M27 IAR or, or infantry automatic rifle. It is really an adapted uh, HK416 is what it is. 
It has, uh, I believe, a 16-inch barrel. It's a it's a bull barrel, and it copies the idea of the Russian uh, RPD, which was or which was a which is a magazine-fed, a seven six two by thirty nine, bull barreled, uh, intended to be used for suppressive fire. It was intended to replace the saw, this rifle, the the squad automatic weapon, belt-fed uh, 5.56 light machine gun. Uh, and basically, most Marine infantrymen will have this. All the frontline infantrymen, I think, already have this and train with it. Um, it's, it's a hell of a good rifle. There's questions about the, the philosophy. I, I leave that to the people who are the experts, and most I speak to kind of like the idea. Um but you look at this thing, and this is not cheap. They're about three or four thousand dollars a unit, even when sold to the Marines in bulk. Uh, he's got a a nice uh, low-powered variable optic here. I'm trying to look at which one that is on his in his case, and I think it's a. Gosh, I'm just the laptop's too far away from my. Uh, it's it's hard to tell. I but I've seen them with uh, I've seen them with new generation six-power ACOGs. I've seen them with uh, Vortex. One to sixes. I've seen them with uh, uh, Trijicon VCOG uh, low power variable optics. Meaning, for those of you who who don't know, um, and this doesn't even maybe this isn't a low power. This looks like maybe a fixed ten power for whatever reason or fixed six power. I'm not sure. Uh, but in any event, these are optics that allow them to function sort of like a red dot up close and then zoom into six x uh, rather than having say a, a fixed four power ACOG like the Marines used to use. Got a bipod. Uh, out at the end of the barrel, you have a suppressor from Knight's Armament, never seen on standard infantry rifles before. Uh, of course, it doesn't make the rifle silent, not at all. But what it does do is it reduces the overall signature. So you might hear the sonic crack of the round coming past it for the enemy, but you won't know the direction it came from nearly as well. It contains the blast at the end of the barrel, uh, means that the flash suppression is far superior to, say, a birdcage flash hider that is normally on a rifle like this. Uh, it is one of the Knight's Armament Suppressors. I have seen mostly the Knight's Armament Suppressors on the Marine M27s. I've also seen some of the uh, Surefire SOCOM line, the, the RC2s. Uh, I've even seen a few from uh, B&T, the Swiss manufacturer. Got a Harris bipod here. He's kind of holding onto one of the legs like a vertical grip um, for whatever reason. Uh, fine, I guess. And you have a device on the side of the rifle, uh, which is a laser aiming module. In this case, it looks like uh, an LA-5 UHP. Though again, I'm a little bit far away from the screen here uh, to, to tell one way or the other. This is a device, and you see these in the movies. You, you've seen this if you look around. Uh, this allows them to aim under night vision using a laser, an infrared laser, meaning that you can't see it with your naked eyes. It also has a visual laser, which is linked to the infrared laser so that you can zero the web, you can zero the infrared laser without having to do so at night. It makes it much easier. And the reason that something like this is used, it also has an illuminator on board, is because looking through an optic like that with another tube on your face, a night vision tube, is tough. Uh, some optics do it better than others. EOTech red dots, for example, do it, do it better because they have uh, a night vision setting. Uh, but but still, it, it's not ideal. And so uh, presuming your enemy doesn't have night vision, that they can also see your laser beam trace it back to you. And there are TTPs to even manage around that. Uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, uh, I mean. Uh, this is the ideal way to aim uh, under night vision, is with, is with a laser. And this thing is not cheap. Um, they sell these to the government. Uh, in fact, 
they are manu- one of our, our lobbying clients um, manufactures these, uh, manufactures LA5 UHPs. And so I, that's why I know so much about them. Um, I actually have one uh, for test and evaluation purposes, familiarization purposes. I've used them. Uh, they're, 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 I think they sell them to the government for $1,600 a piece. They have a civilian version that's low power. It sucks. I mean, it's okay, but it's not anything close to this one. Uh, so anyway, you see what a U.S. Marine has, a standard U.S. Marine here. I'm going on and on, but the, the equipment, uh, the capabilities that a U.S. Marine has, the ability to, to, to lay down suppressive fire, to move and maneuver uh, in every rifleman's hand. You know, whether this concept is one that lasts or not, I think what we can agree, you know, whatever our, our pluses and minuses, whatever our view is on this idea of each one of them having, you know, an individual automatic rifle and, and all of this, however that really works out in practice, what we can say is that no expense is spared. And you see the Russian soldiers with fake body armor, with fake ballistic helmets, no night vision, much less Gen 3 dual tube night vision, generally don't have laser aiming modules. If they do, um, they are actually pretty decent ones uh, made by the, the, the Russian company and the name, oh my God, the name's uh, escaping me now because I'm just not thinking about it. Um, it's, um, anyway, they, they have a couple of these, these modules. They're decent. And in fact, they're high power. They're, they, a lot of US people use them. They order them from Russia. Despite the sanctions, you can still get them. But no expense is spared. That's a U.S. Marine. Okay, that's not uh, a Navy SEAL. This isn't Delta Force. It's or or, or you know people are going to say CAG. This isn't a Ranger. Bottom line is this isn't a higher echelon uh, force here. This is a U.S. Marine infantryman, and they are very capable, by the way, very capable uh, young men and some young women. But the difference is stark. And it's amazing to see how little the overall Russian military has not been upgraded at all. Uh, very quickly here, I they use a 14.5 barrel. Do they use a 14.5 barrel on the uh, M27? I don't know. Let's see here. M27, that's somebody in the chat. Uh, IAR barrel. Let's see if you may be correct. Um, let's see here. Barrel length. The M4 is a 14.5. It works out to 16 um, after the flash hider is put on. Um, I'm seeing here the barrel. Actually, the barrel, we're both wrong. The barrel length it says here for the M27 IAR is 16.5 inches. Um, now, I assume that is before putting on the either Knight's Armament or Surefire uh, flash hider, but I, I don't know for sure. In any event, it says 16.5 here on the specs. Um, so, and then you add the suppressor on, but that's, so it's a longer barrel for, uh, really for ballistic purposes and, and for cooling purposes and for the, uh, idea of, of, of having the parts last longer. Um, that's why they, they opted for the longer barrel. It's also why they opted for the quad rail, the new, um, you know, uh, basically the, the newer generation, basically they're all M lock rails from Geisley and the like. They're good for certain purposes, uh, but they heat up very quickly. Uh, compared with quad rails, and the quad rail actually acts as a heat sink and removes heat from the barrel uh, in a way that uh, the Geisley, you know, thin profile aluminum rails and other manufacturers, M-lock rails, and there's even some key mod rails in circulation just don't do. So that's the thought process there as I understand it. Uh, but 
Moving on here, I want to talk to you about a new report out. We're going to go through it quickly here. Sharp rise in marijuana-related psychosis. American Board for Pain Medicine president. Uh, cannabis products are, uh, set, are producing record numbers of uh, psychosis calls in ERs. The, the data is clear. Uh, it has come out. Uh, this is a report in the Epic Times. This uh, marijuana stuff, it's very popular, this really high-grade marijuana, concentrated marijuana. Of course, the, the worst of all is these synthetic cannabinoids. They are causing a lot of people to make their way into ERs. It is not working out very well at all. So stay away from this stuff. I don't have time to go through the whole report here. I actually have to go to my next lobbying meeting here. Busy season for lobbying. Uh, but we'll talk about this more. But essentially, we, and we've gone over this before, this is very bad stuff. Dr. Ken Finn uh, is discussing it here and uh, talking about how these, this extremely potent marijuana is leading people to have psychosis. In some cases, the psychosis uh, is temporary. In some cases, it becomes episodic over time, even after one episode. In some cases, people fall into permanent psychosis or permanent uh, schizophrenia, paranoia. It's very sad. And what I would stress to you is that whatever you think, however much you like pot, it's not worth it. I'm not going to argue with you. If you say it is so great when you do it, I'm sure it is. It's very popular. I'm sure that um, it feels awesome if it's as popular as it is. I mean, I don't understand it. It's like the, the, the cell to me is sort of, it sort of sounds like, okay, are you mentally retarded? No. Well, would you like to function as if you were? Take marijuana. That's kind of the sell, as I understand it. But hey, as much as you like it, I think it's not worth it. I'd encourage all of my viewers against it. We've we've had so many messages in, some of them private, some of them I've read on the show about people who have had bad effects, they've gotten off of it, and their lives have just been so much better for it. So I'd say stay away from it. Um, of course, send in your questions to the show. Go to jacobworld.org slash contact. Also, uh, you know, the, the way we power the show is not by ads. It's not by telling you to buy a different mattress every week or, or all of that. And, and the reality is the ad model for podcasts doesn't work that well. The ad rates are never as high as they are on radio. The reason is that, of course, on the radio, if, you, if an ad comes on, you really like the show, you can't just fast forward through the ad and listen to the rest of the show. On podcasts, you can. You know, they have the 45-second button. So ads don't work real well on podcasts. They're still out there, but the, the rates are not as high. People sell out for these advertisers. I've never done that. I've had a few people that supported the show, uh, like Nita Fashions, who sent me just a, an excellent custom suit. And and frankly, they're not paying me to say this now, but I the, the suit was just of such superlative quality that I, I recommended them because they sent me a very nice suit. I've had some situations like that. Or Tactical Walls, who makes this great product that uh, you can use as a safe that, that doesn't look like a safe. There's some great stuff out there that I've, I've recommended, but really the advertising model is not a way to do a show like this. What it is, is it's value for value. I hope that I can help you with this, with this show and, and I can, you know, re reduce the noise and, and raise your overall signal to noise ratio, uh, tell you when there's something you should worry about. And, and more often than not, tell you when you shouldn't worry. And when you, you just, because there's so many things in the media, they want to keep you engaged, uh, right wing and left wing. They want to tell you that everything's the end of the world. It's all, you're all going to die, whether it's COVID, whether it is uh, Russia setting off nukes. And so often the right way to approach these things is to, is to look at them and look a little more deeply and say, is this the first time this has happened? Wait a second, it's not. This has happened 10 other times and we didn't all die. And I hope I can basically reduce your 
uh, cortisol levels when you listen to the show. And hopefully you have some fun too and you enjoy it. And so it's value for value. You get value from the show. You send value back from the show. Maybe you can send a donation on Cash App, Real Jacob Wool, or you go on jacobwool.org slash podcast. You can sign up for a recurring donation, 10 bucks a month or or uh, any amount you want really on there. Uh, Gumroad's been great to us. That's a platform that does that. They've always been awesome. And so um, that's what I would say to you. It's, it's uh, something that is a much better model. It's more sustainable uh, than ads or paywalls. And I know so many of you have uh, donated. I, in fact, I, I've got to thank all of you uh, for that, uh, for this episode. And we're going to thank some more on the next show. So thanks so much for doing that, for financially supporting the show. The links are in the description um, and in the show notes. But everyone, thanks for watching. I will see you on Monday. I'll see you on Monday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time live here on YouTube. Uh, just after that on podcast apps everywhere. Share the links. Uh, share with your friends. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. And I'll see you on the next episode of The Jacob Wool Show.